ready. Let's bow our heads once again and ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, I thank you that your blood has washed away our sins. And Lord, we know that We know that you have showered us with so many blessings, with life, even a beautiful day today. And I just pray that you would guide us with the blessing of your presence now, through your spirit, as we look at your word. Help us to learn together from you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you or next to you underneath the chairs, there's pew Bibles, or not pews, chair Bibles. Um, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 11. We'll be wrapping up chapter 11 this week. This section of the letter to Corinth, I find to be perhaps one of the sadder, maybe even the saddest parts of the letter. It's about how the church was abusing the Lord's Supper, or communion. Every time they gathered together, they were ruining the precious time by their own selfishness. Before I read this passage for us, I want to just give you a brief overview of what we know about how the early church practiced the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to do that to kind of set the stage for what was going on, or at least what, as we read between the lines, what we can get, guess for the best of our abilities was going on when the church was gathering back then. So, the early church, when they gathered, they did not meet in big buildings called churches. They were the church, just as we are. Church is a word that means assembly or big get-together. That's why I tell our kids every Sunday, we're going to meet with the church. You'll never hear me say, we're going to church. Or if they, you do, you can slap me, right? <laughs> because I'm lapsing back into old habits. Okay, this, I'm not saying I'm sitting judging how you talk about it. It's, it's okay to say we're going to church. But... We, we, when we want to be specific, we're going to meet with the church. The church meets at this building. So I call this place the building, or the 49 main building. Okay, so if you ever hear me say the 49 main building, um, try to see, usually in our bulletin, if Bible study is going to be here, uh, you know, it's at the building. Okay, so that's what the church, it was really obvious to them, because they met in people's houses. They were the church, and they met in houses. When possible, they met in big houses, because you could fit more people in them. And those big houses were usually owned not by the poor people, but by the more wealthy members in the congregation. And when they gathered, the early church, these early Christians, they would eat together every time. And they would celebrate the Lord's Supper every time. They would break the bread, they'd bless it at the beginning, then they'd eat a meal together, a whole meal, and at the end of the meal, they would 
lift up the cup, just like Jesus did at the end of his Passover meal, which started with the breaking of the bread and continued on through all the Passover feast that had been prepared. And then at the end of the supper, after supper, after supper, he took the cup, right? And blessed it, and they drank together. That's what the early church would do. Now, for various reasons, most Protestant churches, at least, have We've kind of shrunk it down to a, a little quick meal, you know, bite size with nothing in between. You know, bread, cup. See ya. Okay. For better or for worse, that's how we have done it for centuries. All right. But there are many churches that are rediscovering some of the ways and the beauty that the early church did it. And I've seriously thought about this. This is something Brian Brett and I, back when he was with us, uh, their church in. Um, Kansas City does this actually right now, but we've, we've actually seriously considered maybe our first Sunday fellowship meal, we would start with passing the bread out, and everybody breaks a piece off the bread, one, one piece of bread, and then after the supper, have, everybody has a cup, and we go around and we pour, pour a cup and do it together. Maybe we'll do it to June 5. I have to talk with Carl about it. Uh, that's our first Sunday fellowship meal, and uh, we would do the Lord's Supper that way, which, again, that's good. knowing that about the early church is going to help you see Kind of what was going on here. Alright? In these big homes that the church would meet in, archaeologists have discovered and study students of history have discovered that there were big rooms in these um, churches that the wealthy people would eat in. There was an inner room. Fancy name for it was the triclinium. Okay? And they would eat in this room. It was kind of like a, a special room for the rich and famous to have their parties in. And big houses had these. Poor people and servants didn't go in those rooms. They would eat out in the atrium, the outer courts. And what many students of the Bible think was happening in Corinth is that the, everybody was showing up to church and... The, the rich members of the congregation, the buddies of the homeowner, probably, uh, the wealthy buddies, were feasting together in the triclinium with meals that they had brought. So it's kind of like a potluck, and they were having their own little private dinners, like they usually were used to in their before Jesus days, in the triclinium, and the host would provide the wine for the party, and... The poorer brothers and sisters, many who would arrive late because they were working till late, they would arrive in the atrium outside and they would visit with their friends and sometimes they might have a little food that they brought. But we talked about in 1 Corinthians 7, maybe you remember this, there was a great crisis going on in Corinth. Anybody remember what this present great crisis most likely was? Famine. Not a lot of food. In a famine, who has food? Rich people. Okay? And so, poor people, man, you get what you can. Well, in Corinth, it seems that there were Christians who had food and Christians that didn't have food. 
The Christians who had food would have been the rich, and the Christians that didn't would have been the poor. And the rich Christians were not sharing their own meals with the poor brothers and sisters in Christ. They were picking out in the triclinium in the back and even drinking enough wine, probably provided by the host, to get drunk. In other words, they weren't just having repeat fills of the Lord's cup at the very end. Okay, in other words, like, boy, that was good. Um, fill it again. No, this was a whole party going on. During the whole meal, they're drinking and drinking and drinking. And then by the time they get to the Lord's cup, that's like, that's the frosting on the cake. They're already drunk, okay, in these parties. And meanwhile, here you got their poor brothers and sisters in Christ outside waiting for the worship gathering to start, and they're being humiliated because they have nothing to eat. It's a tragic situation. And what Paul's saying basically here is either share or eat at home. Don't do this when you meet together. So that's the background. So with that in mind, let's jump, jump into these verses. Paul says this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Verse 17. For your meetings do more harm than good. Imagine that. Better to not have your church gathering at all. They do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there has to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. This is the NIV translation, um, which I think nails it. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? The poor Christians out in the atrium. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. But when I come, I will give further directions. All right. So that's a lot that Paul just threw at us. I'm going to try to summarize it in the main idea. I wrote it on the back of your bulletin here, the main idea and the, the four points today. Okay. God will discipline Christians who express self-centered divisiveness during the Lord's Supper, instead of celebrating the selfless sacrifice of Jesus together with people. 
It's kind of a long way of saying, but what, what's all going on here? Four points. First, in verses 17 to 22, we're going to look at the selfish eaters. Second, in verses 23 to 26, Paul's going to outline for the church the details of the selfless supper of Jesus. I mean, we're celebrating the Lord giving himself to us. Okay? It's a selfless supper, and you're pigging out like selfish hogs. Third, in verses 27 to 32, Paul is going to give a serious warning for Christians who are being selfish during the Lord's Supper. And fourth and finally, he's going to issue his final exhortation to share with each other. Or just stay home and eat. So, point one, the selfish eaters. Do you know any selfish eaters? Someone who grabs the last cookie off the tray, or worse, the last bacon cheeseburger at the picnic? I think I probably have a little bit of selfish eater in me, especially when it's at my house. Um, but anyhow, let's, uh, I think we can all relate to that. Well, that's kind of what's going on. We can tend to lose our minds when it comes to food, right? Well, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more, more harm than good. Did you catch that? You're worse off after church than before church. Your gatherings are hurting people. That's a horrible diagnosis for a church. When you get together, actually, I'd rather you did. You're hurting people. Whew. Verse 18. It seems here in these verses, Paul is using heavy sarcasm to try to shake the Corinthians awake. Listen to the sarcasm. In the first place, he says, Peter, like, what do you mean, Paul? He's like, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Okay. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul has talked a lot about divisions in the church. They're fighting about leaders. They're fighting about all kinds of things. They're suing each other, for crying out loud, right? There's divisions in this church. By this point in the letter, there's no question about that. So it seems he's using sarcasm here. He's saying, I've caught wind that when you gather as a church in your big gatherings, there's divisions. And, uh, well, shocking. Shocking, guys. To some extent, I believe it. He makes his point by understating the obvious, okay? He's, he's understating what's obvious. Well, to some extent, I believe there's divisions. It's like, yeah, duh, okay? That's, that's what seems to be going on here. The church is a mess. Verse 19, he's continuing the sarcasm. He says, no doubt, there's got to be differences to show which one of you is on God's team, basically, to show which one of you has God's approval, that seems like the most natural way to read this. People debate about it. Well, how, how do you understand what the, the the reading that most convinced I found most convincing is that this this is a um, Paul's not saying it's it's great that there's differences among you to show you who's on God's side and who's not. No, he's 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 mocking them in some in a sarcastic sort of way. But the the point isn't just to pick on them. He's he's trying to love them by shaking them awake. Like, wake up, guys. You're basically saying, like, God's on my side because I've got more food than you, and of course I'm blessed. Or whatever it is, he's, he's trying to shake them away. 
Now, verses 20 to 22, he explains the selfish eating and drinking that's going on. He says, so, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. I'm like, wait, but we were celebrating the Lord's Supper. No, he says, you're eating, um, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. In other words, many of the rich are bringing their own private suppers and they're eating them in that back room while other church members have little or nothing. That's why he adds, as a result, a result of what they're doing, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Remember, the church is people. Do you despise the people by humiliating those who have nothing? You're in a famine. They have nothing. And you're drunk because you have everything. Shall I praise you in this matter? Certainly not. The Lord's Supper, the one Jesus himself instituted, and shared with his disciples, the one that Christians were to observe when they gathered that supper was a shared meal. The disciples all ate it together, even Judas, who betrayed the Lord. But when the Corinthians are gathering, they're not eating the Lord's Supper. Everyone's bringing their own sacked lunch. So picture it this way, right? The wealthy roll into church with their fancy lunch boxes. They've got their names embroidered on them. And they pull out their ham and cheese sandwiches and their Twinkie bars and their potato chips and their Snapple and maybe some Budweiser or some Mike's Hard Lemonade or two or three or four. They go into the back room. Corporate staff or the green room at a concert. You know, they go into that back room with their sack lunches. Meanwhile, Servants of the household who also worship Jesus, and maybe some other servants of some of the rich people, and maybe some other poor people that are coming, they show up with their paper bags, and they've got water and a PBJ, or maybe nothing. And they just sit there in the courtyard, where everybody's going to gather eventually, and they visit with their other poor friends while they wait for the wealthy to finish eating and worship time to start. But unfortunately, when the worship team staggers out from the back, they're really drunk because they've had a great time. Not that Paul is condoning that. I'm just focusing on something else here. What it's doing to their fellow Christians. It's showing who the haves and the have-nots were. You know, it's just highlighting when you gather. It is clear these people have wealth and these people have nothing. And you're not doing anything about it. You're shaming them for their lack. So what he does next is he reminds them that the Lord's Supper was supposed to be the opposite of this. It symbolized Jesus giving his whole life to his people. Not a party where rich can eat selfishly and poor can go hungry. So let's look at the point, the second point in verses 23 to 26. We're going to see the selfless supper of Jesus. Jesus, Paul says, For I received from the Lord 
This isn't something Paul made it up, right? He received it from Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, notice this, right? After supper, so they ate after the bread. Then after supper, he took the cup. They're celebrating a Passover meal. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a circle around near the end in our application, before we go into the Lord's Supper together and make some specific points from these verses. But I just want you to notice right now that the whole supper, and I've already said it, is that Jesus is giving himself for us. And when we, as his people, eat and drink together, we're doing it to remember him. But the only one that the Corinthian Christians are remembering when they gather to eat this supposed Lord's Supper is themselves. The whole exercise is shameful. It'd be better if they didn't even gather Now we're at point three. Paul's going to warn this church. There's a serious warning in verses 27 to 32. Basically, he tells them not to abuse the Lord's Supper like this, or they're going to fall into the discipline of the Lord. Verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What is this unworthy manner that Paul is talking about? I don't think that it means if you feel like you're a sinner, you shouldn't take communion. Like you're feeling sinful and dirty, like you're a failure in your Christian walk. So you say, I'm not worthy, I'm not going to take it. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. No, in this context, the way to sin and become unworthy, sin against the body and blood of the Lord represented by the cup of the Lord's Supper was to eat it in a selfish way that hurt other Christians or to eat it when you're actively doing things in your life that divide the church of Jesus. That's the unworthy manner that Paul is talking about. Or even that divide you from Jesus. That is also part of this. Jesus gave his body and blood to make his church into one family. But those who sin against his body and blood are those who break up the family by their actions and shame and hurt fellow Christians. So Paul says in verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourselves. Not to see if you're a sinner. Because last time we checked, you are. Right? If you're a sinner and you find that out as you're sitting in church and you realize, wow, I need Jesus, take extra communion. Right? You need the forgiveness of Christ. 
You need to be reminded of Christ's forgiveness. But, verse 29, Paul gives the explanation of what you're examining yourself for. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So, who is the body of Christ that they're not discerning? In this context, it's the church. Paul says this really clearly in chapter 10, verse 17. You could flip a page back if you want. He says this, Because there's one loaf, we who are the many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. The loaf, friends, it symbolizes the body of Christ. And when everyone takes a part of the one loaf, breaking it off and eating it, they're saying that though they're different and separate, they're all part of that one body. Like the person across the room from me holding that piece of bread, our pieces were connected at one point, right? It's kind of the idea. If you were to put them all together, the many would become one again. Because there are many, there's, a, there's one body where we all partake of the one bread. The loaf symbolizes the body of Jesus, the family of Jesus. But when a Christian eats bread and says with his mouth, I'm one with my brother, but is stiff-arming him behind his back, he's not actually unified with another person, or even with Jesus Christ himself, I think that's not a direct application here in this text. I think the focus here is on how you're hurting other Christians. But if with one hand you're eating the body of the Lord, and with the other hand you are living for the devil... That's another serious application here. Don't do it. You're telling it a lie as you do it. You're saying, I'm one with the Lord and his people, and yet I'm not. Paul says, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Now, in context, I do not think that Paul is talking about a judgment that's going to land a Christian in hell, a punishment an eternal condemnation from God. The condemnation of the world. That's not what he's talking about here. When he says, you're going to come under the judgment of the Lord. And he goes on to unpack that. This punishment is going to take the form of corrective discipline. Of a father. To disobedient sons and daughters. So, this is where the letter takes a very serious turn. Look at verses 30 to 32. He says... That is why many among you, O Corinthian church, are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. Hear that? Trained. Disciplined. So that we will not finally be, here's the judgment you don't want, condemned with the world. So Paul says that the reason many of the Corinthian believers are weak and sick, like my gosh, another person sick in church? Another person died? He died? What? What is going on in this church? He says the reason is because they are a divisive and sick church, and they're coming under the Lord's judgment. Now, I want to say two things about this that are really important. First, the judgment, and I already mentioned, but I just want to 
bear in a little further here. The judgment Paul says is falling on the church is not eternal punishment and condemnation and separation from God for their sins. It's a disciplinary judgment, a corrective discipline in the case in, in the form of weakness and sickness. And it's meant to be a wake-up call to the Christians. In the case of Christians falling asleep, Paul talks about, some even have fallen asleep. It's a wake-up call to the whole church to take sin seriously, lest they too die. Paul uses the term fall asleep, which is a common term the Bible uses for a Christian who dies with the hope of resurrection. When someone falls asleep in Christ, it's in the hope that they will wake up. And one day, Jesus will wake up everyone who falls asleep trusting in him. So what I'm saying, and I think Paul is saying, is that this falling asleep for the Christian is not, even the death, is not an eternal punishment. It's not a condemnation of the world mentioned in verse 32. It's a corrective discipline that falls on people who have trusted Jesus to pay for their sins, but need the Lord's discipline in their lives. They need the sin to stop. Sometimes it stops with their own death. So, first, this isn't a condemnation, it's a discipline. And when it falls on the whole church and they see people falling asleep, like the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who sinned against the Lord and dropped over dead, great fear fell upon the church, great reverence for the Lord which woke them up to the seriousness of what's going on. This discipline helps the whole church wake up and keep following Jesus and not fall apart and come under condemnation and eternal separation that the world faces. Um, there's another thing. I want to I nuance this because I think it's important. Just because a Christian is weak or a Christian is sick or a Christian dies, that does not mean that that Christian is abusing the Lord's Supper or that they are living in sin. Paul himself talks about his own physical ailments in 2 Corinthians. Some a thorn in the flesh that he felt made him feel weak. It was a humbling experience that God used in Paul's life to help him rely on the Lord to keep him humble. It was not discipline that came as a result of willful sin in Paul's life. It's not explained to us that way. The fact is, 100% of Christians who have ever lived have gotten sick in their lives, and 100% of Christians who have ever lived die. And 100% of us, should Jesus not return, will one day fall asleep in Christ. For those who trust in Jesus, getting sick or even falling asleep and dying up to the point of our death ultimately strengthens our hope in the resurrection. But this passage teaches us that Christians need to at least ask the question, if the, is this suffering that I'm experiencing something God may be using in my life to wake me up? To get my attention and say, return to me. Is bitterness towards other Christians consuming my life? 
Is pride and arrogance blinding me to other Christians and making me insensitive to their needs and their feelings? Suffering has a way of waking us up, of clarifying our minds. Seeing other Christians die has a way of sobering a church up. And friends, if a sudden rash of just absolutely terrible things starts happening to a church, that church ought to ask themselves, is the discipline of the Lord falling on us? And if so, what is he trying to teach us? What does he want us to remember? Pain may just be a call to persevere. A church. We see churches in Revelation. Jesus says, you know, Satan is going to throw some of you in prison for 10 days. That's a testing period. It's not because they were weak and sick and sinning, okay, that they got they went to jail. They, they didn't interpret it that way. It was a, a test. He says to the victor, he'll give life, right? Just because something terrible happens to a church doesn't necessarily mean that. It is in direct response to their sin. It's calling them to run to the Lord. But if it is in response to their sin, it has the same effect. Turn back to Jesus. Discipline gets our attention. Pain gets our attention. That's why parents who carefully use pain in a measured response in disciplining their children model how the Lord treats his own people. So Paul warns them, and then he gives a solution. The solution is to share. That's the fourth point here, verses 33 to 34. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. This is a family meal. Eat like a family. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Can we have the directions now, Paul? We'd like to hear more. No, he's going to give those ones in person. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. Paul, when you gather, eat it like a family. And if you're like, man, this is my lunch. And if I don't, if I bring it and, you know, share it, I won't have anything for me. If you're really that hungry, just eat at home. Okay, that's kind of the point here. Otherwise, this isn't going to be the Lord's Supper. It's going to be your supper while others go hungry. So whatever there is when you do come together, share it as a family. Don't let the Lord's Supper be a source of division, but of unity around Jesus. My goodness, one one tragic thing that's happened in the over the course of church history has been even wars fought over definitions of communion. <laughs> I mean, my gosh. This crazy stuff. Catholics say, this is my body means it actually is the body and blood of Christ. <laughs> and if you say differently, well, there was a time that you would get killed. 
Whoa. And the Lutherans would say, well, it's not the literal body and blood of Christ, but it's the spiritual body and blood of Christ. Loophole, you know. And, and then Zwingli said, absolutely not. And then there's some that are so strong about there's not anything spiritual going on in communion that like the only place Jesus isn't present is the body and blood on Sunday mornings. Like he's present everywhere else, but you better not say he's spiritually present there because woo, we might start another war. Okay, Lord's Supper has been tragically the cause of many divisions. And yes, there are genuine differences. Friends, God's goal for the Lord's Supper is for it to be a family meal that unites believers regularly together in fellowship, remembering their closeness with Him and their connection to each other. So again, the main idea, God is going to discipline Christians to express self-centered divisiveness during the Lord's Supper instead of celebrating the selfless sacrifice of Jesus together with his people. So some applications as we move towards celebrating the table together. First, the Lord's Supper is a time to eat together and remember our unity as believers. If you're sitting here feeling like a failure in your Christian life or this past week has not gone well, I want you to know, God is calling you to receive the forgiveness of Christ today. To reconcile with him even now. Hold the bread and the cup extra tightly. To examine yourself, though, means to look at your life even now. And see, is there anything unconfessed or unrepented in our relationship with Jesus or with the Lord and with other people that I need to make right? Something that I can do to make right. Some way I have actively hurt somebody. And I can deal with it. This is the thing that Jesus says, Matthew 5, 23-24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. In other words, you really hurt them somehow. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. There in those verses, Jesus was talking to a Jewish people who were making sacrifices to God at the altar, which remember I said was like a table where you were having a meal with God. <laughs> um, the sacrifices that you ate from the altar, uh, which wasn't all of them. But before you have a family meal with God, okay, make sure you're right with your fellow family. That's, that's the idea in the Old Testament and what Jesus said. And it applies now in Christ to the Lord's Supper. Second, as we eat and drink the bread and cup together today, these verses teach us we are doing it in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. When you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, I, I don't believe it's the intention of the Lord Jesus for us to sit there and 
picture him on the cross and feel sorry for him for what he went through and be all sad and sober and somber like we're having a funeral service for Jesus every Sunday. Jesus' death was his triumph. By his death, he defeated the devil, ripping away from the devil his power to accuse the people of God forever. Jesus triumphed on the cross. He paid for our forgiveness, and he sealed it with his blood, and then he rose triumphant. He lives. So when we eat, we proclaim the Lord's death in hope until he comes. This is a heralding, proclaim, heralding word. You are proclaiming something. You're proclaiming Jesus died and he's coming again, which means he rose in the meantime, right? It's a proclamation about Jesus. Communion is a victory celebration. One of my former professors calls it in his commentary, he calls it a, a celebration lap. You know what, you ever, like you score a goal and you run down the field like this? That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a Jesus scored the goal and we're celebrating. <laughs> he lives. He forgave us. And we receive him. We receive him for us today by faith. Third, as we eat and drink together and we hold the bread and cup close, we're called to feel and taste and touch our strong and close and intimate and life-giving connection to the Lord Jesus himself. This is my body. This is my blood. Eat, drink, remember me. It doesn't mean that the bread and the wine literally become the blood of Jesus. It's symbolic language. Just like Jesus says the cup is the new covenant. No, it's not literally the new covenant. The new covenant is the, the new way that Jesus has established our relationship with God. That we relate to the Father now through Jesus and the work of Christ and through his blood shed. We could preach a whole sermon on what the new covenant is, but it's not literally a cup. Okay, This cup symbolizes the new covenant, and so Jesus says it is. Just like he says, this bread is my bread. It symbolizes the flesh of the Lord. I'm not going to fight wars with people that disagree, but we're going to look at this text. It symbolizes the covenant that Jesus made with sinners when he shed his blood for us on the cross. Hold it close and remember. Fourth, not only should we think over ways that we may have sinned against other Christians, and need to make it right as we eat communion. But we ought to sit and think about other Christians as we hold the bread and cup. And celebrate the fact that we are a family. We're close. Even though we might be very, very, very different from each other. Different in age. Different in income. Different in housing situations. Different in stage of life. Different in occupation, different in political views, different in views of everything. We could be so different, right? And yet, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have the same Spirit. We are called to the same fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have one King, Jesus, that we live for. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall and will continue to do so. But our king is forever. We serve him. We're soldiers in his army. Warring not with flesh against flesh and blood. We war against the principalities of this dark world that would have the church break apart. That is our war. We have to see with the eyes of Jesus. What is hurting the church is hurting Jesus. What is breaking apart the church is breaking apart the body of Jesus. We must be serious about these things. One king, Christ. One family, Christ. Perhaps one of the reasons Jesus has not returned yet is because, boy, we have not gotten this right for 2,000 years. I encourage encouraged by signs of unity in the global church. You know, when Christians start reaching across the aisles of denominations and linking arms, it's often on front lines. You're willing to work together on front lines as missionaries of gospel advance. Like when Christians start going to jail, suddenly it sobers us up, right? It's like, yeah, let's not fight about these things because... Um, I may be bringing you food in prison next week. <laughs> Those are the type of things that have brought the church together. And we haven't faced that in our society. Maybe we will someday. But the point is, communion is a time to celebrate our togetherness through Jesus. The fifth thing, just remember, as we eat and drink, Christ is presented to us as a whole person who is to be received by faith, by trust. And so as the bread and cup are going to go around and you take it into your hands, remember, you're saying, I receive Jesus. I receive all of him for all of me. I need him. I trust him. I want to be a part of his family. I trust him for the forgiveness of my sins. If you can't say that today, then the bread and the cup are not for you. If you're not a Christian, then this isn't for you. But if you do trust Christ, then I encourage you, receive him today. And the sixth and final thing as we eat and drink together, we eat and drink in hope of the day that Christ will come again. Do you see that in verse 26? We proclaim his death until he comes. Jesus will appear again in flesh to finish the salvation work that he started on the cross. He will come to abolish sin and wickedness from his world and to usher in the fullness of his new creation, which will be culminated in a great wedding feast of the Lamb, the final supper. So we eat and drink in hope. When one day, all divisions will be completely gone. We'll never have to leave our sacrifice at the altar, as, as Jesus says, right? We will be one with Christ and with his people, world without end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for 
this time where we can eat and drink and remember. And I pray that as we remember, we would remember the body of Christ, that we remember your family, that we are family together, that we are one through what you have done. Father, I pray that if there's any bitterness in our hearts towards other Christians that's just festering there, that you would help us right now. Maybe there's nothing we can really do. It's just in us. And we can't make it right with them and make it worse if we told them. But, but we know it's really about us and you, ultimately. I, I just pray that you would help us to dig out the root of bitterness by remembering the mercy that we have received from our King. Help us to release those who have hurt us. And if we have hurt people, and they're suffering because of, if we, because of it, if we have truly shamed other Christians, made them feel like second-class citizens in God's kingdom, made them feel lesser, which is what is going on in Corinth, I ask that you would bring great conviction into our hearts, that we would seek to make it right, Father, help us to be one with you, to live for you as you have called us to. In Jesus' name.